sermon text this morning is from Hebrews chapter 12, verses 18 through 24, and then the Gospel of John chapter 1, verses 10 through 13. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and a darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. The grass withers, the flower fades. Let's pray. Father, as we come before you, as we come before your word, we ask, O oh God, that you would meet us in this place. We do pray that you would attend to us in our need, that you would remember that we are but dust in this moment, and that your spirit would come and give us peace, that it would calm our hearts and take away all the cares and worries that we take into this place. Lord, soften our hearts to receive your word, that we might be faithful to it and faithful in receiving it. We ask, O oh Lord, that you would meet us now. We pray this all in your name. Amen. Well, it is Dickens of a Christmas weekend here in downtown Franklin. If you didn't know that ahead of time, you definitely know it now as you painfully searched for parking spaces. I'm glad to see that you didn't give up. A few of you will get tickets <laughs> somewhere. I don't know where you parked, but I, I hope that you'll be spared. We're glad that you're, you're here. It's a two-day festival, as some of you know, who've been longtime Franklinites. I heard someone complaining yesterday, where did my small little town of Franklin go? as thousands and thousands of people gathered in downtown and many more thousands will gather today. It is a wonderful two-day festival, though. It is, it is when Franklin becomes Victorian England. We recast the time of Charles Dickens, and if you have been uh, downtown yesterday or plan to go this afternoon, you'll likely uh, see some of the leading characters from Charles Dickens' a very famous Christmas story, A Christmas Carol. You know, think about A Christmas Carol and that wonderful story just a few weeks ago as I was unpacking boxes, getting them down from the attic, looking for the lights that never work. <laughs> Why is that the case? It's a great mystery 
of the cosmos, why lights work one year and then they're done. But I found an old copy in that unpacking. We pack away several Christmas books and just bring them out during this season. And one was an old volume of Charles Dickens' Christmas stories. He actually wrote a number of Christmas stories. His most well-known is A Christmas Carol. And just begin thinking about that story. I usually will pick up that book at some time during the season and read little selections uh, out of it and just be reminded of what it is that that story teaches because it teaches a whole lot. You'll remember Ebenezer Scrooge. Who can forget Ebenezer Scrooge, that penny-pincher, bitter old man who on Christmas Eve is counting his money when his old partner, Jacob Marley, shows up on the scene as he is getting ready for bed. It's a most unwelcome visit from Marley. You see, Marley died a long time ago. And it's been a while since he's laid his eyes on his old partner, and he never expected to lay his eyes on his old partner again. And here he is, not in the form that Scrooge remembered him. He saw him in a ghostly form, a form with chains and with um, a misery and pain that goes along with the punishment, even the condemnation that he received after his death. He's now haunting as a restless spirit, and he's come that night to haunt Scrooge. But it's a kind haunting in one sense of the word because he's come to give him a warning. He's come to tell Scrooge that if he continues to live the miserly penny pincher life that he has come accustomed to, that the same fate that has befallen Jacob Marley himself will befall Ebenezer Scrooge. And he said, this night, in succession, several ghosts are going to come and visit you. Yeah, this is not the end of these weird encounters. You're going to have several more. The ghost of Christmas past, the ghost of Christmas present, and yes, a ghost of Christmas future. And during those visits, you need to pay close attention to what they tell you. Because you're going to see, as it was, the source for why you're a bitter old man who can only say bah humbug to anyone who says Merry Christmas. Why you're a miser. And you're holding on to your money, which you won't be able to take with you when you go. And what your future looks like. And why you're on the path towards destruction. You'll remember in the last ghost that visits Ebenezer Scrooge, shows him a tombstone, the end of his life, and his name inscribed on that tombstone. And, and Ebenezer Scrooge comes unglued. He comes unglued in that moment in the story, also in the movie renditions that some of you have seen. He begs and pleads for more time. And as he does, he wakes up. And he's safely tucked in his bed. And there are birds singing outside. It's Christmas morn. And in a turn of fate, as it were, he rises from his bed with a new life. Almost a resurrection scene. A man who had to come face to face with death in order to change. Now what I love about the Christmas carol and that story is not simply the sweetness of the way that it rounds out. Uh, of how Ebenezer Scrooge jumps down the staircase dressed in his Sunday best, goes to church, begins to meet the needs of the poor, even gives his clerk, the Crackett family, uh, a raise that they much deserved and even cares for Tiny Tim, their crippled son, as if he was his own. Beautiful, almost Hallmark movie 
like finish. It's not really that that sticks out to me. It's the fact that real change comes usually on the back end of a scare. That to be quite honest, Scrooge had to be scared to death to be scared into life. Now, when it comes to Advent, something really around that theme rings true in what it means to prepare our hearts for the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. We tend to think that being with God will be a pleasant experience. If we know our Bibles, we might think otherwise. Hebrews chapter 12 begins to unfold the very fact that there is a rhythm in the Scripture, and the Scripture actually moves from Old Testament to New Testament, post the fall, along this narrative line, that the people of God almost always have to be scared to death, to be scared into life, in order to be scared no more. And that's the story that we're going to look at this morning from Hebrews chapter 12, and then jump over to John chapter 1, as Nathaniel read to us a minute ago. We want to see that rhythm. Scared to death, scared into life, to be scared no more. Now we're going to start by looking at this passage in Hebrews 12. This is where we're going to spend most of our time. And we're going to start with verse 18 in this section. Verse 18 begins uh, this way. And then I want to jump down to verse 22 so you can see the organization of this passage and see the way the narrative is actually moving. It starts in verse 18 with these words, For you have not come. And then he gives a description. And then notice verse 22. But you have come. In verse 22. There's a structure here. And he's, it's centering around a word that you probably would have read through and not really thought that much of. This word, come. Uh, the Greek, in this particular moment, around this word, Come is actually pretty significant. It's, it's not the ordinary word for come in the Greek language where we might believe or might think of come as, hey, you come over here, as in moving from one place to the next. It means something really different than that. Come in this context uh, means the turning of the face toward. It, it means being directed in a certain way. It actually is associated several points in the scriptures with discipleship. The idea of arriving at a place but also being committed to a path. Um, Howell Jones and his commentary on the book of Hebrews says this. This word come carries the idea of conversion. The idea of a change of life. That you have turned from something and you are now turning toward something else. It's the language that we often use of repentance. The writer in Hebrews here is saying, listen, I want you to know, my readers, you have not come to a place that you know very well in your history. You've come to a new place. Don't act like you're still in the old place. Don't opine to be back in the old place. It's not as good as you remember. I, I want to show you where it is you've really come in Christ. And if you can see it, if you can experience, if your face can be set towards it, if you can walk in the conversion of this new path, it's going to make all the difference in your life. Now, the reason that was important in the book of Hebrews and why the writer of Hebrews belabors this point here in Hebrews chapter 12, which is really the climax of the book. If we were, be, if we were doing a verse-by-verse -verse study through the book of Hebrews, we would, we're coming to the mountain top 
of this glorious, glorious book. In fact, it's, it's, not a, it's not a letter as many of us tend to read it. If you look back at the very beginning of the book of Hebrews, you'll notice there's no normal greeting, no normal salutation. He actually describes the writer himself, who is not named, is described this particular writing in chapter 13, verse 22. He describes it as a word of exhortation. Not an epistle like Galatians or Ephesians or Romans. It's a word of exhortation, which is another way of saying it's probably a sermon. It's probably an example of an early sermon. Now, if that's the case, chapter 12 is the conclusion. Chapter 13, he cleans up some practical things. But chapter 12, he's, he's pulling all of the threads of the logic together. He's pulling all of the rhetoric together that he has scripted in the first 11 chapters. And he's saying, here's where I want you to land. Here's the climax of where I want you to actually come to. And the reason this is important for you, my original audience, is that you're waffling because you're scared. You see, his original audience were Jews. That's why it's called Hebrews. They were Jews, but they had converted to Christianity. They were now Christ followers. They were once Judaizers. They, they were following the commandments of Moses, but now they have believed in Christ that he is the fulfillment of all of the old covenant promises. And that now they must walk in the path of Christ, which is not exactly the same as walking in the path of the Old Testament. Because once you embrace Christ, you see that so much of the Old Testament and so much of the instructions and so much of the stories and the institutions are all fulfilled in Christ, which means that many of them have gone the way of all the earth. They've been abrogated. And the others have been fulfilled, and it's going to require a new way of living. And that's these Jews who've embraced Christ. And it's why, if you go back to the beginning of the book of Hebrews, you'll see chapter by chapter that he's talking about the sacrifices of the Old Testament. He's talking about the temple. In the tabernacle. He's talking about the priestly order and that shadowy figure named Melchizedek. And he's saying all of these, all of these uh, various storylines and threads that weave their way through the Old Testament, well, they culminate in this person known as the Lord Jesus Christ. But, as I indicated, they're a little shaky in their faith. It's a fledgling faith. It's a, it's a newly minted faith. And they're beginning to second guess whether it's the right direction. And here's the reason why. They are experiencing trouble for the very first time for their faith. They're actually under the gun. Persecution is on the horizon. And because persecution is on the horizon, they have a real question as to whether or not they've made the right decision. They're, they're like you and me. You remember, right? You were working in Atlanta and you had a great job and then you moved to Nashville because the money was going to be better and everything was going to unfold and you moved here and it was terrible. The bottom fell out. It was nothing like you expected. And then you begin to question in your mind, did I make the right decision? I didn't think it was supposed to feel this way. You know, you were single and happy. And then you met her. And she was beautiful. And she was, and you just had to marry her. And now you're a few years in, and boy, um, it wasn't what you thought. Guess what? She's a sinner. Uh, and you are too. And, and it's not, there's some sparks flying. And, and you're, you're beginning to wonder, do we make the right decision? These Jewish Christians are, in a sense, at that place. Did we make the right decision? Should we go back? as this passage is saying, to an earlier age 
Should we have taken a different path? And they're wondering if going back to Judaism would mean going forward. But what the writer of Hebrews is saying, no, to go back, is to go backward. In fact, it's to go to a scarier place than you are now. You see, that's the description that's here beginning in verse 18. He says, you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of the trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages would be spoken. It's a haunting, speaking of Christmas Carol and Jacob Marley, it's a haunting description. A a place that's touched, that's blazing with fire and darkness and gloom and a storm and a voice that makes its, its hearers beg that it would stop. What's he talking about? Well, he's talking about a mountain. Mount Sinai. He's talking about the people of Israel who have just uh, been redeemed out of Egypt and have been brought in uh, to, the, to, the, to the relationship with their God, Yahweh, whom they had longed that he would redeem them out of Egypt. He did so, and as he brought them through the wilderness, he brought them to Mount Sinai, and he had to tell them a few things about himself and the law and what it meant to be in fellowship with him and what image that they were created in. And that they must conform to the standards of that holiness if they are to experience really and truly his fellowship. And in the moment that he reveals himself, God reveals himself to the people of Israel at Mount Sinai, the people are quaking in their boots. It's the scariest thing they've ever seen. They're literally running from the mountain pleading with Moses, their mediator, get him to stop. Get him to stop. Now, there's an irony. They were, they were just under Pharaoh in Egypt and the iron fist of that totalitarian regime. That's where it was. A scary place. But the fear at Mount Sinai when God in his holiness begins to show up, when God begins to write his law and give it to Moses for the people, the terror that they experience with God's presence makes them long to be back in Egypt. All of a sudden, the question becomes not who's going to save us from Egypt, who's going to save us from God? Who's going to save us from the one who, who saved us? And you see, in that moment, when they begin to genuinely encounter God, what it is that they're experiencing is what I'd like to call a good scare. A scare that undoubtedly some of us need to experience. Who, who believe that relating with the creator of the universe who holds all things in his hands and right now is giving you second by second the breath that you breathe and in a moment can take it from you. It's not to be trifled with. He, our relation with him is not cavalier. He is a holy, righteous, And almighty God. And he will require the full degree of his law from you. Let me tell you, in that moment, something of a shiver up your spine should happen. 
It's the scariest thing that you will ever encounter. You are like, in that moment, if it's registering with you, the people of Israel at the foot of Mount Sinai saying, tell him to stop. Because when God's presence begins to show up, we begin to come undone. All of who we thought that we were, and even the conceptions of our life, begins to be exploded on the spot. Just think of Isaiah. Isaiah, when he's in the throne room of heaven and he sees the train of God and it fills the temple and the seraphim and the cherubim are singing and there's fire and there's blazing light and he, a prophet, a quote-unquote holy man, one who mediates for the people of God says, I'm a man of unclean lips. I dwell among a people of unclean lips. And then he says exactly the point that's being described here as a reminder to these Jewish Christians who are waffling about where it is that they've come. He says, Isaiah, I am undone. I am coming apart at the seams. To be in the presence of a holy God means for me to be torn to shreds. And what Isaiah is experiencing there is the heat of judgment. He didn't get close enough in that moment. God spared him that it wouldn't absorb him and incinerate him on the spot. He got close enough, though, to feel the pain of it. And if God had pressed in a little further, he would not have been around. And this is why something of a pause should come into our hearts, even at a time of Advent, where we're saying, Lord, we're preparing for your coming. And we think sweetness, pleasant. But I, I, I challenged you to look into the Old Testament and find someone who walked away from an encounter with God with, with pleasant hummings coming from his soul. Sure, it didn't happen to Job. At the end of the book of Job, after Job, who has been, as it were, arguing with God, calling for a case with God, a trial with God about the way in which he's been treated, and God actually eventually answers his, his prayer. Be careful what you ask for. And when God shows up, Job's response to God's presence, his initial self-response is, I despise myself. Why, why was that? Did he need an antidepressant? Was he, just, was he just needing a little therapy, a little counseling to kind of tweak his self-esteem? No, no, no. He was for the first time in the brilliance of the light of God's holiness, seeing things as they are. That's what's scary about it. You see, we walk around with conceptions that we're pretty good people. We actually compare ourselves. I think I'm a little bit ahead of him. Well, I may be a little behind her, but we're, I'm close. I'm, I'm hot on her heels. You know? When in the reality of the fact is... When we begin to do just the slightest comparing to who it is we've been designed to be, based upon the standards that God has given us in the light of his holiness, there's not a one of us that's got anything on anybody. And in that moment, no one was walking around. Isaiah wouldn't walk around. Job's not walking around. And the writer of Hebrews is saying to these Jewish Christians, you ought not be walking around going, I, th I think we had it pretty good. You're not seeing things as they are. It's in that moment when the holiness of God comes that the stuff that's been hidden comes to the surface. Our smallness, 
our mortality, our, our creatureliness, our sins, our idle words, our deviant thoughts, even the motivations that are evil for the good things that we do. It's all painfully present to your conscious self. And in that moment, you go, woe is me. Get him to stop. That's what you did. Now, the reason that's so important and the reason that you must feel in a very real sense and have it capture you is being scared to death of the holiness of God is the way that we're scared into life. It's the way that we're scared into life. Because as that law begins to bear down upon you and when the holiness of God begins to register with you, what actually happens is as Paul says in Galatians chapter 3, that law, that standard of holiness, as it registers with you and your soul and the people of God, it is as a tutor that leads you to Christ. Because in that moment, what you'll begin to do is despair of yourself. When in most of the times you go, I think I've got this. I think I've got this. And in that moment when you're in the presence of God, nobody says that. In fact, you say the opposite. But it's in that moment where you might say, is there any hope? What can I do? It's like Scrooge as he's laying there in the midst of that vision with the ghost and says he pleads for more time. Is there just something, something that I could do? And it's in that moment where the scriptures shows us Christ. But not a moment before. You ever struggle really appreciating what Christ has done? Like, you know, you know the gospel and you know who he is and you know what he's done, but it just doesn't seem to really affect you and arrest you and make an indelible impression, even transformation on the way that you live. It's because you're not seeing things clearly. You're not yet, it's not registering with you right now. It, ask the Lord to register His holiness, His righteousness, the condemnation that you deserve, and the fact that in a split second with all holiness and righteousness, He could judge us and send us to hell for eternity. And it pains me to think in a room this large with the varying souls that are here with as many people as here, some of us are a breath away from that reality. This is, this is scary and it's true. It is, as it were, a nightmare for those who do not know Christ. And for those who do know Christ, it should be a gut check. We're told in the scriptures, and it is a season of Advent, which is a season of preparation, it's a season really of repentance, leading up to the arrival of the Lord Jesus Christ and that celebration. It means that we should examine ourselves to see if we're in the faith. Godly, not morbid, but godly introspection to really pause and take inventory. Where am I? Am I seeing things the way that the Bible shares them? Are they hitting me in the soul the way that the scripture articulates them? And if not, pause right there and pursue the Lord. Get help. Talk to someone in this room. Begin to seek the Lord because at that point, you're, you're, you're like Isaiah before the throne room. 
You're like Job before the moment that God reveals himself. You're at the place where you're, you're holding on to false conceptions of who you are and who God is. And, and you need him by the power of his divine revelation to explode your concept of himself and yourself. In order that you might be saved, you need to be scared to death. In order to be scared to life. In order to come to Christ. Now for the believer who is in here, this is not a one-time event. Okay? If you're like, oh yeah, I did that. When I was you know, seven, I walked an aisle, got baptized. Great. What's the rhythm of your life? What's the pattern of your existence? Where are you today? Where are you today? Yes, there is a moment in time of conversion. There's a turning of the face, a directedness. But we said it wasn't just a moment. We said it was a path. And as you walk down that path, here's the way God's so gracious. He consistently deconstructs you and dismantles you. He increasingly humbles you. He more and more gives to you as you walk by the light of His holiness and His grace. That increase dismantling is what begins to rebuild you. You see, that's the way redemption works. He doesn't scrap you and start over. He deconstructs you and rebuilds you. And it will be painful. It may be persecution as the way he does that. But remember, he disciplines those whom he loves. That's a sign of his grace. It's a sign of his care for you. Not a sign of his rejection. As he tells the people of Israel, listen, as you've come into relationship with Christ, you've not gone back to Sinai. You've come to a whole other mountain. You've come to Mount Zion. And this Mount Zion is utterly different than the mountain experience that you had many years ago in the wilderness with God. Listen to the way he describes it. Verse, verse 22. That you have come to Mount Zion. And notice, what is this Mount Zion? Well, if you begin to explore this in the scriptures, we'll get Psalm 87. What you'll see is Mount Zion is synonymous with the city of God. It, it was connected to Jerusalem, the geographical location. But it wasn't ever Jerusalem in the physical geographical location. It was a spiritual kingdom of God. It was the reality of God's kingdom breaking in. He says, you've come not to Jerusalem. You've come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. And look at how he describes this heavenly Jerusalem. To innumerable angels in festal gathering. That looks really different than gloom and doom and tempest. But where people are running away in terror, he's saying it's like a party. That language of festal is the idea of a Dickens festival. It's the idea of a party. It's a gathering of angels, a celebratory event. You get from something that scared you to death, and now you've come into a place that welcomes you with the joy of the angels. He continues, and to the assembly, the word there is ecclesia, church. You come to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. You're not scattering to the four winds or the people who are judged. You have come to a place where you've been enrolled into the, into the Lamb's book of life. You have position in heaven. It's a gathering, not a scattering. And in so doing, you have security among the assembly, the people of God. And notice where you've come. And you've come to God, the judge of all. 
Well, not, uh, well, we were going so well until then. It was going so well until that moment. That does not sound warm and fuzzy. You've come to God, the judge of all. But why do you think the writer of Hebrews includes it there? He includes it there because he knows the reality of the gospel. You, who've already been enrolled in heaven, you who've come into the festal gathering of the angels that right now as we participate in worship, we are positionally in Christ in the heavenly places. It may be, by God's grace, that the overhearing of the work of the Spirit of God in our midst right now is entering into the throne room of heaven by the power of the Lord Jesus Christ through his mediation. We've already entered into that festal gathering. You've already come to it. It's breaking into your life. It's breaking into our midst. Can you hear it? Can you see it? That's what's happening. You're already enrolled into the heavenly places. You're already in union with the righteous souls made perfect who've come before you. And you come to the judge of all. And you don't miss a beat. You don't shudder in that moment. Because you know that you can come now to the judge of all. You can come and he will receive you. Because the quaking of Mount Sinai for you happened for somebody else. You see, when Jesus was born and lived a life ministry and of service and of adhering to the will of his father he came at the end of his life to a hill to a mountain called Golgotha and on that hill in the moment of his crucifixion Matthew tells us that the ground shook that the rocks were split open that gloom and darkness overshadowed the cosmos and you should be hearing in that something of Mount Sinai. You should be hearing the quaking holiness and wrath of God for sin being poured out on our beloved Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And in that moment, Christ satisfied that divine justice on your behalf. He fully Quenched it, as John Newton put it. He has, right, hushed uh, Mount Sinai's flame. He's quenched Mount Sinai's flame. He has the one who has brought the entirety of our sin and its punishment upon himself. And in that moment, he experienced what we won't have to. Fully satisfying and fully confirming our stance before Almighty God in the heavenly places. Right now, we've been washed in that blood. We've been washed in that blood. You see, Moses, in Exodus chapter 24, after the giving of the law, was told by God to sacrifice, and he sacrificed, and he sprinkled the blood. And that's what we see in this passage, the sprinkling of the blood. He sprinkled the blood on the people, on the scroll, on the tabernacle, on everything. And it was a way of saying the only way that you can enter into the presence of God is not going to be on your own merit, standing at Sinai, talking about your credentials. It's going to be when you are blood spattered with the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ.
that he was undone for you. That when he stepped into the throne room of Isaiah and experienced the undoneness of the holiness of God, he was quaking at the very center. And then after his death, he survived it. And he rose again from the dead. And that's why in this passage, it's such a better blood than Abel. Remember? Remember Abel? First bloodshed? A, a, a murder of revenge. A sign of the curse. Why is this a better word? It's a sacrifice. And the satisfaction of God's vengeance that lifts the curse. See, we're no longer under the stain of the curse of the bloodshed of an Abel a murderous, revengeful plight. We have now been freed through the bloodshed of the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. And when that happens, you will, I think, with great joy, say exactly what it is that John Newton said in that glorious hymn. That he, the Lord Jesus, has hushed the law's loud thunder that he has quenched Mount Sinai's flame. That we have been washed in the blood of the Lamb. And he has brought us nigh to God. Now, I don't know what Dickens was thinking when he named Ebenezer Scrooge Ebenezer. But I will say this. And Ebenezer is a rock of remembrance. It's a mountain. It's a little mountain that says something. It says that God did something here. And when the mountain of Golgotha received the judgment of the Lord, what was set up through Christ was an Ebenezer, a rock of remembrance. We look back to Sinai. It's been quenched. The law's been hushed. We look to the Golgotha. We see where it is that it happened. And we look to Mount Zion, of which we've already come, and we see that the gates have been opened wide for the likes of us because of the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I pray, as you prepare for the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, something of a new mountain, a new Ebenezer, a new rock of remembrance takes place in your heart and mine until Christ comes. Father in heaven, we ask that these truths Truths of your coming, truths of your sacrifice, truths of your work would ring so deep into our souls, they'd become unforgettable. And Lord, if that means that you've got to, as you have done for many of us in this room, if you've got to scare us to death, please do it. Please show us. We, we acknowledge we don't even know what we're asking, and when you do it, we will wish that you had not. But please listen to the Spirit of God who intercedes for us. He knows what we need. And if we need to be scared to death to be scared unto life, then we know then that path will lead us to what we know is even more true, and that is that we'll need to be scared no more. And so today, those who should come to the judge of all shaking in their boots, come to the judge who is our Father, and we relax into your arms as sons and daughters. And we receive your smile. 
because we know Jesus has done his work for us. And we praise him and we rejoice for his sake. We ask all of it. Amen.